Man, y'all love good news. I love good news. I have some good news this morning. We celebrated the birth of Eleonora Grace Putnam, and uh, so she was born on Friday. So congratulations to Christian and Victoria on the birth of their third daughter, Eleonora. Uh, if you have a Bible, grab it, turn to Malachi chapter 3, and I'm going to read starting in verse 8. Now listen, as I read, you follow along either in your copy of the Word of God or on the screen, and let's pay close attention to it, because this is God's Word. It's inspired, inerrant, infallible, our only rule for faith and practice. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's spend a moment in prayer. Father, open our ears to hear from you. Open our eyes to see good things in your word. Open our hearts to the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Enter in. Lift up your gates. Cast wide open your doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, strong and mighty. He is the King of glory. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our midst this morning when those who are far from you back to your forever family build believers up in their faith and Lord, equip workers to make disciples and Lord, send disciple makers into the lost world with this message of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a few years ago, we had an elder at Good News whose wife made this amazing cake. It was called hummingbird cake. It didn't have hummingbirds in it. Okay, no hummingbirds were killed in the making of this illustration. This hummingbird cake was unbelievable. Every year when we went on our staff elder retreat, she would make one of these hummingbird cakes. And so on the night when we were ready to eat this cake... I was shocked when out of the kitchen walked one of our staff people, whose name will not be shared to protect the guilty, he had on his plate a piece of cake that must have been a quarter of the cake on his plate. And when I saw that piece of cake, 
my heart literally sank into my stomach. And my first thought was not, I'm so glad my brother is going to enjoy that piece of cake. I'm so glad he's been looking forward to this just as much as I am, and he's going to enjoy it. No, my first thought was, I hope there's enough left for me. That's how big of a sinner your pastor is. All of us, all of us, live to some degree with that same mindset that if you win, I lose. That all of us are on some sort of giant teeter-totter in life. And that for me to go up, you have to go down. And if you go up, I go down. It's a scarcity mindset. And all of us suffer from this scarcity mindset. And, And when we live out of that scarcity mindset, it's impossible for us to believe what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is the exact opposite of the scarcity mindset. It's the generosity mindset. But when we hear the generosity mindset that 10 minus 1 is good for us, what we actually hear with our heart is that 10 minus 1 equals less. That's the scarcity mindset. That 10 minus 1 equals less. That if I give... I'll have less to live. And the generosity mindset comes along, and the generosity mindset is exactly the opposite. The the generosity mindset says 10 minus 1 plus God equals more. Now, under the scarcity mindset, our hearts are led by the world in which we live into fear and anxiety. Over the, over the past several months, we've watched the stock market go up and down and up and down. The scarcity mindset in the market is called volatility. And as we've watched volatility, our hearts have been filled with fear and anxiety. It causes us It causes us to fall prey to the advertising world that says, act now. Supplies are limited. And in its worst expression, the scarcity mindset can cause our hearts to hoard possessions, to fall into prepping and hoarding, and all sorts of other things that show just how much fear and anxiety can grip our hearts. And God comes to us in the gospel, and he says, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to live with a scarcity mindset. You can live with a generosity mindset. Now, many years ago, a man named Stephen Covey wrote a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and in that book, he said... That the solution to the scarcity mindset is to think win-win. Remember that chapter? Think win-win. You know God goes one bigger? God says, don't just think win-win. God says, think win-win-win. 
And that's what we're going to look at today. That everyone wins when you give 10. Everyone wins when you give 10. Well, what do I mean by give 10? That's the first thing we're going to look at. What does it mean to give 10? The next thing we're going to see in the message this morning is, well, why? Why would I want to give 10? And then we're going to talk about, well, how we can get there. What is it? Why do I do it? How do we do it? Those are the three things we're going to see. Now, first, what is it? Well, look at verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? The answer God gives is, in tithes and offerings. In tithes and offerings. Many, many people think that to tithe is some sort of weird Hebrew or Greek word that the Bible has that describes the spirituality of giving. It's not. To tithe literally means to give 10%. That's the math. Give 10, 10%. In Genesis uh, 28, verse 22, Jacob says, This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. In the ancient world, it was common for a king or a sovereign to demand from his subjects the giving of 10% of their possessions back to the king, back to the sovereign. But notice, the first occurrence, the first example of it, of Jacob, is that he freely, he freely gives a tenth to God. God had so worked in his heart by grace that Jacob can't help himself. He has to give. He wants to give. He can't believe he gets to give. But God, accommodating to the world of the ancient Near East, in his law, he says in Deuteronomy that his people are to give. Deuteronomy 14.22, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. So God is king. And as king, he asks his people to honor him as king, to honor him as the authority, to give him first place in their lives, to demonstrate to the watching world that their king isn't an earthly king. Their king is God. That their authority is God. That their master is God. That the one they follow is God. Now, when we don't give, as God invites us to, then we are doing what? Robbing God. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And... Jesus would follow up on the lostness of the Israelites. Jesus would follow up on the lostness of the Israelites' hearts by indicting not their giving, 
but their heart, the, the sin of their hearts. Why did God want them to give? Because God's desire, his, his desire was to bless them, to provide for them, to give to them, so that they would have resources to give to him. But their hearts, their hearts were cold, their hearts were rebellious. You see, Israel had the law of the tithe, but they didn't have the heart And so Jesus came along, and when Jesus came along, his desire was to address not their outward obedience, but their inward disobedience from the heart. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus indicts the religious leaders of his day by saying, Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, Jesus doesn't set aside the giving of tithes. But he goes after the heart. He goes after the heart of the Pharisees. And he says, you've missed the point of the law. That the point of the law was was to reveal your need of, of a Savior. And I'm that Savior to reveal the greatness and glory of God, your provider, your king, your authority, your master. You've missed the point because your hearts have turned aside from me. What is it? It's the tithe and the offering. It's 10%. It's given to God, our king, our master, our authority. And in the Bible, throughout the Bible, when we think of the tithe, we should think of three things. The first, the best, and the most. The first, the best, and the most. When we give to God, we give to God the first. Proverbs 3, verses 8 and 9 says this. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. When we give to God the first, we show in our hearts, that God has first place in our lives. We give to God the first. We give to God the best. We saw earlier in our study of Malachi that the people were rebelling against God because they weren't bringing to him the best. In Leviticus chapter 22, verses 17 through 22, God had prescribed the offerings that they were to bring, and he said, you're to bring me the best. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons, the sons of Israel, and say to them, any man of the house of Israel or of the aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether it is any of their votive or any of their free will offerings which they present to the Lord for a burnt offering for you to be accepted. 
It must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow, or for a freewill offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those who are blind, that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord. And so in Malachi 1.8, we saw that the people had turned aside from God's command regarding this. And in verse chapter 1, verse 8, when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When we bring the best, when we bring the best, we show that God is, is holy. He's the best. He's the most pure. He's without defect. He's without fault. The first, the best, and the most. It speaks of tithes and offerings. And taken together, can't you imagine that tithes and offerings taken together in the life of a person living in 425 B.C., that 10% of their their produce plus their offerings that were given regularly in the temple for the sacrifices, wouldn't you think that that might be the most amongst all their budget? That when they had their little family budget meeting, they had their finance committee meetings in their families, and they filled out their, their ment.com budget, they would have said, you know what? We're giving God the most out of anything. How about us? Most Americans spend around 30% of their income on their housing. Their housing. And most Americans generally give around 3% of their income to charity. Most Americans spend around 5% of their income on entertainment and give to charity around 3%. So we're not coming close to giving God the most. Now, if our stewardship of the resources God has given us is to reflect who God is, that he's first, that he's holy, and he's the most important thing in our life, how are we doing? How are we doing? George Barna uh, recently did a study of American Christians who go to church regularly, and the study uh, found that fewer than one out of ten of every churched Christians, whatever that means, donates at least 10% of their income to churches and other nonprofit organizations. Let me just, don't bury the lead, okay? One out of 10. So fewer than one out of 10. So less than 10% of churched Christians tithe 10% of their income to churches and other nonprofit organizations. And 
And then Barna discovered this, that over 33% claim to do so. So less than 10% do, but over a third of us say we do. Now you see why Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, I want you to hear me, okay? I have no idea what any of you give. I have no idea. And I have no idea what any of you make. And I'll never ask as your pastor. It makes no difference to my responsibility to love and care and shepherd you. But you should ask. And I should ask. How am I doing? How are you doing in giving tithes and offerings? Will a man rob God? Now that's what it is. Now why would we do it? That's what it is. Why would we do it? And God's answer is that his desire is to bless. His desire is not to condemn, accuse, belittle, demean. His desire is to pour out blessings on us. In verse um, 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. God's desire is that everyone would win, that God would win, that God would win. He would be honored as the first thing in our lives, that he would be worshiped as the best thing in our lives, that he would be seen as the most important thing in our life, God would win. He wouldn't be robbed. He wouldn't be robbed. Would you like to live in a neighborhood where nine out of ten of your neighbors rob you regularly? That'd be horrible. Nobody would say, yep, sign me up for that neighborhood. In fact, let me pay double. We wouldn't do that. And yet God says, don't rob me. God wins. He's not robbed. The church wins. When we give 10, the church wins. The Great Commission is fully funded. I don't know anyone who would laugh more at the fact that there's a church named Irene Presbyterian Church than Irene. She is laughing her head off. What a blessing. What a legacy. What a heritage. The church wins when we give 10. The church wins because the Great Commission is fully funded. Look at verse 12. All the nations, all the nations will call you blessed. All the nations. The Great Commission is that we would take the message of the gospel to all the nations. And how can we take the gospel to all the nations if we don't give to fully support that mission? Now, one of my heroes is a young man named William Borden. You may not have heard of him, but you've probably eaten his family's yogurt, Borden yogurt. William Borden died at the age of 25. 
But before he died, God captured his heart for the Great Commission. God captured his heart for the nations. And so when he died, he gave his entire estate, which was sizable. Did I mention his family was the Bordens? He had a huge estate. Even at 25, when he died, he gave all of his estate away to mission agencies, organizations, and church boards that were getting the gospel to the nations. I added up all that was in his, his will, and then I adjusted for inflation from 1909 to the present. And in present dollars, the amount of his estate would have been $33 million that he gave away. He was 25 years old. About the same time, another man who was very, very wealthy and also a Christian. His name was J.P. Morgan. You've heard of him. He was a Christian. He died at 75. And his estate, given at the same time, went through the courts and his estate added up. It was half of what William Borden gave at the same time, 75-25, what made the difference? What made the difference? William Borden, as a freshman in college, said this, Lord Jesus, I take hands off. As far as my life is concerned, I put you on the throne in my heart. Change, cleanse, use me as you will choose. Young people, you are not too young to make decisions about who has first place in your life. You say, I don't have any resources. I don't even have a job. Make Christ Lord of your life and give yourself to the task of following Jesus to the nations and he will give you everything you need to accomplish that purpose in the world. You may not have the same wealth that William Borden had, but you can have the same master. You can have the same Lord. You can have the same heart for the nations beating in your heart. And when you do, when you say, Lord Jesus, I take hands off, don't be surprised at what he puts in your hands for the good of the nations. Now, God wins. The church wins. The Great Commission is fully funded. Ministries are fully funded. You win. You win. When you give 10, you win. You get to see God. Test me. Test me, God says. He doesn't say, test my word. Is it true? Is it reliable? Is it faithful? That's true. The Bible is true, reliable, and faithful. But God doesn't say, test my word. He says, test me. We get to see God, the God of the universe, bend his hand to provide for us what we need and to fill our hands, hands that are ready 
to give. Hands that are ready to invest. Hands that are ready to share. He loves to fill those kinds of hands. And he will. Test him. You'll get to see God. But even more, even more, your heart will be vaccinated against the materialism that we swim in. Now, for those keeping track, that's the first time in 19 months that I've said the word vaccine or vaccinated from this platform, okay? And what we're vaccinated against by our generosity is materialism. And it's far deadlier than any other disease that may face us. few years ago, uh, two guys named, they were childhood friends, maybe you've heard of them, Ryan Nicodemus and Josh Milburn. They got together uh, and they did a documentary and the name of the documentary was The Minimalists. And they went on and they created a podcast and they went on tour and they created somewhat of a little cult following around their philosophy, around their worldview that said less is more. It wasn't original. They borrowed it from Jesus. Jesus said, I want to create a tribe of people. I want to create a church that loves me and is, whose hearts are vaccinated against the materialism of their day. By putting me first, I want your heart to be satisfied by what I give you. And when we give 10, we win. We win because we get to be a part of Jesus' countercultural tribe. It's way better than the minimalist tribe. It's way better than Nicodemus and Milburn. Now, Jesus may not have a podcast, but he has a community. And it's you. And when we test God, we get to see him. And our hearts are vaccinated against the materialism that's all around us. That's why. Now, how do we get there? How do we do it? The action step for this week is take a step. And the most important step that you can take, the most important step that you can take is to believe the gospel. The gospel has bad news. The bad news of the gospel is that God gave you everything that you have. He gave you everything that you have, and none of us, not one single one of us, has ever given back to him what he deserves in worship, in honor, in obedience. None of us have. And we have two problems. Did you remember the statistic I read? It said that less than 10% give the tithe. So we've been disobedient. We've robbed God. And that means we're guilty. But did you hear the other thing? That we not only have we not given the tithe, we've said we did. Which means we have a shame problem. We're not only guilty... 
We're trying to cover over our guilt and our shame by lying about our giving. Over a third of us say we tithe when we don't. So we have a guilt problem and we have a shame problem. And that's the bad news of the gospel. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has done something to make it possible for the guilt of our sin to be forgiven and the shame of our sin to be covered. And the way he did it was this, that Jesus Christ, by grace, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich, that Jesus Christ covered himself in guilt and shame on the cross. Jesus Christ climbed on the cross, the rich one put on poverty, and he was treated poorly by the Father in our place, on the cross. He bore the full guilt of our shame, our guilt and our shame. Our guilt, all of our sin was placed on Jesus, and he was punished in our place. Our shame, Jesus died naked, publicly, on a garbage dump for you and me. And by his sacrifice, he offers us forgiveness of sin, guilt, and he offers us his righteousness, his perfect record can be credited to our account, and that's the one thing that can cover our shame. Lying about our sin can't cover our shame, but Jesus' righteousness received by faith can cover our shame. And the first step in becoming a generous follower of Jesus is to become a follower of Jesus. The first step towards generosity is to believe the gospel. Have you? Look at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 3 of Malachi. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that I will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed. I'm sorry, I skipped verse 10. I said 10 and 11, then I started in 11. Let's go back up to 10. She whiz. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will. Twice, 10 and 11, God says, I will do it. To trust in the gospel is to say, I can't. And to hear God say, I will. See, the gospel is good news for sinners. Because the gospel doesn't say, try harder. The gospel says, let me do it. The only way to enter into the gospel is to admit that you're bankrupt. And to ask Jesus to do it for you. The gospel isn't, try harder. The gospel is Jesus saying, I'll do it so that you won't have to cast off their grapes so that the devourer won't come to them. The devourer can come to me. I'll be devoured in their place. I'll be cast off in their place so that you can bless them. 
I'll do it. When we receive Christ, we admit that there's nothing that we can do but to believe in him, to receive him. It's an empty hand of faith lifted to a king, the hand of a beggar. Are you bankrupt? Are you broken emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially? Lift up a hand of faith, an empty hand, and receive from him so that he will do for you what you can't do for yourself. And when you understand grace, when you understand the great grace of God, then everything he puts in your hand, you'll want to share with others. Everything he puts in your hand will be an opportunity for radical, generous generosity. Overflowing, thankful generosity demonstrating the greatness of God that he is first, that he's best, that he's most, and he is. Don't rob God. Don't rob God. Instead, let him who steals steal no longer, but let him work that he might have something to share with those who have a need. When you give, everyone wins. Everyone wins. William uh, Walter, sorry, Walter Henriksen, in his book, Disciples Are Made, Not Born, he tells a story of a man who was driving one night with his family, and in the story, they make a point that it's a Volkswagen. I don't know why, but I think it must have been a Volkswagen bug, and it was a family of five, which makes more sense when you hear the story, so just keep that in mind. One spring, a family of five driving through Georgia in a Volkswagen, Five people in a buck. I'm thinking that's important. It was late at night and raining so heavily they could hardly see a hundred feet down the road. As they were inching their way along, they noticed a man and woman walking along the highway in the pouring rain. They pulled over, asked if they could help, and noticed that the woman carried a baby in her arms. She said that they lived in a town several miles back, but the electrical storm had caused a short in the wiring of their house, setting a fire that burned it to the ground. They had barely escaped with their lives and were walking to the next town seven miles away. The man reached into his wallet, pulled out $20, and gave it to the woman and drove off into the night. A couple of miles down the highway, he stopped the car and asked his family, how much money do you have? They pooled their resources, came to a little under $100. They drove back to where the couple was walking, and they asked, do you have the money that I gave you? Quite surprised, the woman said, well, yes, we do. And he said, well, give it to me. Perplexed, she reached into her pocket, pulled out the $20, and handed it to him. He combined it with the money he had, and handed it all to her, saying, Here, our family would like you to have this. When I first heard this story, Henriksen says, I thought, what a beautiful and precise illustration of how God treats us. Our Lord gives us so many wonderful gifts, and then he comes to us and says, 
I'd like to have them all back, every one of them. He does this so that he can combine them with his unlimited resources and give them all to us. Discipleship, following Jesus, is our opportunity to tap the infinite resources of God. It's our chance to give our lives to significance rather than mediocrity. In following Jesus, in our generosity, we are not doing God a favor. He's doing us a favor. It's an, it is vital that the disciples grasp this important concept. Jesus said it's more blessed to give. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But everybody wants to live. Nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to be free, but nobody wants to be a slave. Everybody wants to get, but nobody wants to give. And this is precisely where we run into conflict with God. He created the world. He made us. He made life. He made the rules by which we ought to live our lives. Everyone wins. When you give 10. So take a step. Trust in the gospel. Jesus' radical generosity. Let that come into the center of your life. And then, with open hands, everything that you receive from God, be ready and available to give back to him. Take a step. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. We've sung it this morning. You are good. Good. Let that goodness capture the affections of our heart. We've said, you're all that we need, God. Let that capture the affections of our heart and push out everything else that might compete against you for being the first and the best and the most in our lives. Jesus, when we live in reality, when we live according to what's true, then you are the first. You are the best. You are the most. So capture our hearts afresh with that truth that you are the greatest. And Jesus, if you're moving, stirring hearts this morning, then, then would you draw every person here to you? And for some, that may be, mean trusting you for salvation as, as you're offered in the gospel for the first time. And if that's you, won't you just say to God now, God, I admit that I've sinned against you in many ways, and I'm sorry. But Jesus, I believe that you died and rose again. You paid my penalty and you covered my shame. Jesus, come into my life as Savior and Lord. And help me become the person you want me to be. And oh, Jesus, for those of us who are your followers, then certainly that would include our finances. But Lord, we live in the midst of a culture that screams scarcity. Help us to hear your voice saying, generosity is the way. 
It's more blessed to give than to receive. We pray in your name. Amen.